Welcome to the Modern Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified holistic health coach, intuitive eating specialist, and health at every size advocate. Cozy up with me each week for empowering conversations with ambitious women as we share real stories around our relationships with food, body, and moving through life in the modern world. Hi. Hi, welcome back. Welcome if this is your first time to the show. I'm Caitlin Parsons, and I am so excited about my guest today. Ah! I'm geeking out kind of as I record this intro. Um, My guest today is Jessica Mernan. If you don't know her, you're going to love her. There is a very specific reason why I wanted Jessica on this show. And I want to share a bit of the backstory before we get into our conversation together. So when I was conceptualizing this podcast last year, I was just thinking about what I wanted to talk about, what the intention was for this this show, and who I wanted to have on, the type of woman that I wanted to have on. So I made a dream guest list, and Jessica was at the top of the list. There's a reason why she is one of the most authentic, heart-centered women that I follow, and I've I've followed her for years, so it was pretty cool to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with her one-on-one. Jessica is the author of the One Part Plant Cookbook, which I have, the host of the One Part Podcast, which I listen to. It's one of my favorites and founder of Know Your Endo, which is the endometriosis education and awareness platform that I have recommended to countless women in my life. She also has a soon-to-be book that is releasing this spring of 2021 with Pen- Penguin Random House, and she is she's just cool. Jessica is super down-to-earth and authentic and has has such a strong mission for the work that she does. And I, I'm just really grateful that she came on and shared her story so vulnerably. We get into Jessica's specific body image story and her body awareness moment, what that looked like and how that shaped her body image throughout her childhood, adulthood, life in general. We also talk specifically about endometriosis and we We really unpack that, what that is, what are the symptoms, what are the struggles. We really get down and dirty about all of the things related to endometriosis. And I wanted to have a conversation like this, and I'm so grateful that Jessica was able to be my guest to talk about this because so many women either know somebody who is struggling with this, are struggling struggling with this themselves, are struggling silently and not understanding how to name the symptoms that they're experiencing. And so if there is anything that I hope you take away from our conversation today, besides the fact that Jessica is a super cool, badass woman and all of the things that she does, it's awareness around endometriosis and how we can really come together as as women and as a community at large to open up the conversation around support, treatment, options, resources, all of the things. And so I hope that you feel inspired walking away from this talk as well as 
like you have solutions, whether it's how to support somebody who's struggling with this or how to take the next step if you yourself are experiencing anything related to endometriosis. Um, just to toot Jessica's horn a little bit more and tell you where she's been in her career, Jessica has contributed to or appeared in numerous magazines and websites. Uh, some of them I'll just include here, Bon Appetit, Goop, Shape, Mind Body Green. She's spoken at Apple, South by Southwest, Taste Talks, Seed, Food, and Wine, The Good Fest, Wonderlust. I mean, it goes on and on and on. She has built such an incredible career, and there's a reason for it. You'll understand why when you listen to this conversation, but not only is she really well-educated on this topic, but she breaks it down in a way that is understandable and relatable and full of heart and compassion. We talk about all of that in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy before, before we get rolling with, with this conversation. I want to just share that today is the first day of the binge eating solution group coaching program that I'm running. And if you are still on the fence about stepping into this, now is the time to do it. And I, I'm so excited to lead this incredible group of women. This particular group is built around so much heart and soul and experience and education and all of the things that I, I've learned myself. And I'm just really excited to be able to lead this group over the next eight weeks and help you heal your binge eating and your relationship with food and provide sustainable tools for you to be able to understand how to actually do this and teach you new skills for handling the challenges around food and binge eating and, and really give you an understanding of why this is happening in the first place, how to move forward through it, and to arm you with tools and resources so that this actually is healed and in a sustainable way. It's exactly why I created this. And just the fact that we're going to be in a group together in this powerful community, there is so much healing that is available when we come together as women and we're able to look around and say, me too, me too, me too, me too. I get it. I see you. I've been there. I've done that. I thought I was the only one. And that's exactly what this point container is going to be. It, it is going to be an intimate group where we can share vulnerably and also get solutions for moving out of the pain so that you can live a life free from binging and you don't have to go through the struggles of feeling preoccupied with food or the guilt or the shame or the anxiety and just had a peaceful, calm, relaxed relationship with food so that you can feel more comfortable in your body. If you're interested in this, please reach out to me. If you have any questions, you can send me a, a direct message on Instagram. Otherwise, just click the link and sign up. It will be in the show notes. Uh, you can also go to caitlinparsons.com backslash group coaching and find all of the details there. I will be keeping enrollment open for one more week because these group coaching calls are going to be recorded 
we'll also have a Voxer chat going in between our sessions together. So it's a really high touch program. And if you're coming in a week late, you'll be able to jump right in without feeling like you missed a beat. So if you're hearing this late and you still feel like this is your time, this is, this is your sign, then I want to invite you to join us. All right. I hope you have a great week. I hope you're taking care of yourself just with everything going on in the world. And I want you to know that I am sending you so much love. I'm so grateful for you here being here. And without further ado, here is the fabulous Jessica Mernan. Jessica Mernan, this is so great to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing your time today, love. Of course. Yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I've, like I just said before we hopped on, I've been following your journey for years, and this is definitely a cool moment for me, just being able to sit down and finally connect with you. And I just, I feel really lucky to be able to talk to you about all of the things that we're getting into today. So thank you mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, I feel lucky too. Not for me being here, but to be here with you. <laughs> Let's kick it off with uh, the first question that we ask everybody on the podcast. So can you just start by sharing your first body awareness moment? So essentially that moment that you realized, hey, I'm in a body and this means something in the world that I'm living in. You know, when you when you guys sent that that was your first question, it's so weird because two things came to mind immediately. One was like the first moment where I felt like, a tangle for a boy. Mm. Like that was a weird awareness moment. And it was this guy, Alistair from, there was a show called, you can't do that, do that on television on Nickelodeon when I was younger. And it was like an older show, but there was this guy on it named Alistair. And I think I might've been in like the first or second grade, but it was like the first time I felt like a tingle for a boy. Mm. It was, I remember it very well. And then the, the second body moment that I remember so well, and not to be a negative one, but, but I guess sort of like a first moment of like, oh, things happen to your body that you don't want to happen. I remember when I was in probably the third or fourth grade, maybe fifth, I'm not sure, but it was definitely before sixth grade because I remember the house that it happened in. I remember seeing my first like zit whitehead type of thing in between. I remember it so well. It was like right in between the middle of my unibrow because I also had a unibrow. <laughs> and um, I just remember staring at it and thinking, should I pop that thing? Like, what is that thing? And then I remember touching it and it turning bright red and then thinking, what is this? Like, so I think that's like one of the first moments where I felt like some things of my body were out of my control. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so funny. I, as you're saying this, I actually have a similar story that came to mind that I haven't thought about in years of my first zit. And I remember my friend's mom telling me how to pop it and mm-hmm. this is so gross. <laughs> it was like that moment of recognizing, oh, when you pop the zit, sometimes something like hard comes out and that means you really yeah. pop the zit. 
(laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And then, yes. Oh my God. I love popping things. Yes. I do know what you mean. (laughs) Me too. And then there's something so satisfying about it too. So that, that was my first zip moment and, uh, I can totally relate. So from there, that was the third or fourth grade. Share a little bit about your relationship with your body from, from that point. What did it look like growing up and, and were there, uh, was it positive for the most part? Was there any? No, it was very negative. (laughs) Got it. I mean, it's not, it's not funny, but it's just like, it's funny because I just, from a very young age, I had a very negative body image and I wrote, I wrote about this in my first book briefly, but I just remember being very young, like maybe in the first or second grade and my doctor, my pediatrician, like grabbing my tummy and looking at my mom and telling her that I should lay off the mashed potatoes. And so, you know, feeling like from a young age, like, oh, like food, makes you fat and this is not good. My body is not good. This pediatrician is telling my mom I shouldn't eat so many mashed potatoes, which was funny because he said that because that was actually my favorite food. So, um, and then, you know, just, I've never been thin by any means. So just getting called lots of names, blubber, butt, Bigfoot, because I I didn't even really have Bigfoot, big feet. I just kind of wore big sneakers. Mm-hmm. Um, just being called, just a lot of names, uh, and and I think too, my sister was always very thin, so I kind of had that comparison too of maybe what you should look like, quote unquote, and what I looked like. So, and, and I remember so well, oh my gosh, this is like heartbreaking to think about my son hearing this, but I remember this so well in like the third or fourth grade, I was in the other room at my best friend's house and she went into the kitchen and got some pretzels or a snack or something. And her mom said, you know, hey, like she was whispering it, like, you want to be careful getting all these snacks. You don't want to look like Jessica. And I was like, and I mean, you're so young, you don't really understand what that means. And it's kind of fleeting, right? Because it's just like, and then I also remember being in the seventh grade. I remember these grades very specifically because we moved a lot. So I can kind of remember the house we lived in. Mm-hmm. My mom had a friend that was visiting from out of town and I had really bad insomnia growing up. And I remember my mom telling her friend how she felt kind of sorry for me because I was such, you know, had such a different body than the other girls that I was friends with. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, even if someone didn't say it to me directly, it's like overhearing these little things that like I was not normal, I guess. And I think that when you continue to hear that, then you believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And the indirect feedback, that's, that's so heartbreaking, especially as, as a kid and not really knowing how to actually receive that or what to do with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm curious when you when you were 
in those moments of hearing your friend's moms saying things about you and your mom's friend, what did you do with that information? Were, was it the type of situation where you began trying to manipulate your body or did your relationship with food change at all at that point? Were you talking about it with, with anyone? How did it shift just your body image when you heard those things? I mean, I think when I was younger with like the pretzel snack comment, it didn't really, I don't know. I, I mean, I think obviously it impacted me in some way, but it wasn't something I don't think that like I carried with me because I don't really know that I thought I could do anything about it mm-hmm. at that point. Cause I think it was also very different, right? Cause like I'm a little bit older than you. So like I didn't, you know, social media didn't exist. And like, there wasn't, obviously I looked at like magazines and stuff, but there wasn't, I think as much like overtly obvious, like this is the way your body should look until I was a little bit older, like with Kate Moss and people like that, supermodels. Mm -hmm. So I don't really think younger wise, I thought about it. I mean, I definitely think seventh, eighth grade, like I definitely was like, Uh, But then I never really, I never really, it's weird because I don't really think that I ever really connected it with food that much. Like I didn't say like when hearing, overhearing my mom say that about my body, I never was like, oh my gosh, maybe I should eat less pizza now or maybe I should eat different. I still kept eating the way I did. I just like hated myself. Mm. So I didn't really make that connection, which is weird that I didn't make that connection and maybe even kind of good that I didn't make that connection at that age. Cause I think it could have turned into like in crazy intense disordered eating. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just thinking that as you were sharing. So what was your relationship like then going into high school and, and just making that transition with, with food and body and, and just your relationships in general at that time around, around these things? Yeah. I mean, I don't, again, the food thing, (laughs) it wasn't until like I was in my like mid twenties that I really connected food to how I looked, I guess. Um, That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's it's weird because I mean, I, I definitely was eating whatever I wanted. And I think, you know, in high school I had severe body dysmorphia, like I'm talking like brushing my teeth in the dark. Like I could not even look in the mirror with the lights on. And so my mom sent me to a therapist at that point. And that definitely went into college. And I think when when I hit college, I, I really started to realize it wasn't just my face that I hated. It was more my body seemed just like a monster. Like, I, I guess I just like, I think even to this day, I, I'm still very unaware. Cause like there's, when I look back at photos, the times that I thought I looked the best, I was probably a lot heavier than the times I thought I looked like my heaviest, which I was thinner. Mm-hmm. So I think it was just like, just a total mind F. Like I remember so well, there was this night where I felt hot. Like I was like, I am, I'm looking, 
good. Like I was finally feeling a little bit more comfortable in my skin. I went to go see this boy and like I parked, this is college. I like parked in this parking spot that apparently was somebody else's. And, um, the dude was like, yo, fat girl, like you got to move your car. And I was like, wait, I'm fat. (laughs) Like I just like, it just, I never, I think with the body dysmorphia, I just like never had a concept of what I actually look like. It's so interesting that you are sharing this. I just posted something about body dysmorphia and Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of these, um, it's one of these mental conditions that is so much more prevalent than we think in our culture, but we're just not really talking about it. And so I'm curious where, where did the language come in for you around this? Was this something that like, how did you actually know to see a therapist? And when you were in therapy for this, was, was this a term that you guys were actually using? And, and yeah, I mean, that was, um, I mean, when it was, you know, my mom sent me to therapy mainly because we moved a lot and I, we moved in between my, after my sophomore year, we moved. So I started a new high school junior year, which if anyone has ever done that is like one of the most complicated, hard things of a teenager's life. Cause you know, at that point everyone has friends and like I left my boyfriend, we moved from North Carolina to California. So it wasn't even like a neighboring state, you know? So, Oh my God. It was a I can't even imagine. That's so pivotal. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very devastating move for my young heart and mind. And so I was already like, I was basically crying every single day that I did not want to. And I mean, I was also kind of like alternative, like goth, like I only wore like black and like we lived in California and I was mad about it. So (laughs) (laughs) the body dysmorphia definitely was happening in North Carolina, but then it just, you know, my mom sent me to a therapist because I was just so upset every single day moving. And then also because of not being able to brush my teeth and with the lights on. Yeah. And so we were definitely, we used that language a little bit about me hating myself, but I think it wasn't until freshman year of college that I was actually diagnosed with body dysmorphia. Interesting. And I remember so well being diagnosed with it and automatically going to the library. Cause again, pre like Amazon prime, yep. um, going to the library, finding there was one book about body dysmorphia and just devouring it. And just some of the stuff like really resonating with me, like over plucking your eyebrows and just being so focused on certain parts of yourself and not being able to look into the mirror and just everything about it was like, oh my God, this is me. But then also feeling very, I guess, um, not a believer that it could be fixed. Mm. It didn't feel like hopeful, I guess, the book. But I remember that book so well. Like I remember it exactly the cover where I read it. Yeah, it was it was crazy. This I can so identify with this story. I, I I'm I don't know if you know this or not. Probably not. But 
So my story, I, I struggled with bulimia on and off for mm-hmm. 15 plus years. And mm. I have this vivid memory also pre-Amazon, pre-social media in <laughs> college of coming out to my psychology teacher that I was struggling with bulimia Mm -hmm. and he kind of diagnosed it for me in a very like off the cuff way. And I remember rushing to our, our library on campus and getting all these books and hiding them behind like other books so that nobody knew that I was reading them. I was too embarrassed to check them out and just feeling a so connected. I, I was almost relieved like, okay, like, somebody else is out there who's going through this because I didn't know anybody at the time. And B, um, you know, there's, there's some answers in here, but I also, to your point, I did, I had no uh, hope of it changing or getting out of it at all. And so it felt a little hopeless at the same time, but yeah, the, the library moment I totally resonate with. Um, And I want to see what you think about this because I, I feel like when you're struggling with these types of things, and I'm not talking about the comparison game on social media in terms of like whose house is nicer or who has better like workout clothes or something, but I think that I was thinking about yesterday how like I think there's just like too much information now with this stuff. Like I would almost rather go back to just being able to find that one book that could help me versus going down a rabbit hole of like a hundred other women that are suffering with this and this is how they solved it and this is what they're eating and this is what they're doing. And I mean, I think a podcast like this is great because it's just, you know, two voices kind of having an open conversation about it. But I don't know. I just, lately, I just, I've been struggling with some, some health things lately. And I'm just like, I just want to like not go online for two months and figure this out on my own. Yeah. I so relate to that. And I'd love to have, get your thoughts on that. I'm happy to share mine, but as somebody who is essentially an influencer in this space, I mean, you have a, you have a book, you have a podcast, you have a course, uh, you have a pretty strong online presence. And so setting those boundaries and, and showing up authentically in moments of feeling like I'm actually just wanting to, to turn it off because I feel so like, so out of alignment with the comparison and just having too much of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really resonate with, with that. I think that for me, I totally feel like there's way too much information about all of these things. And I think that that can almost put people in that state of not taking any action at all because it's just too overwhelming. And so um, when you're in that place and you're essentially craving control, it can feel so out of control at the same time. And so it's easy to stay in the habits that you're comfortable with because you don't really know where to go first, what action step to take or or how to move forward. For sure. And and I think... I'm not saying my next book is going to be, you know, the end all be all savior to to someone that's struggling. But I, I think that with the book that I just wrote, it's not coming out till next year, but I just, I tried to 
I really, when I was writing it, I was like, I want this to be like a singular guide in a way and have so many voices in it and so many doctors and experts that like, this can be your guide as, as opposed to having to go down 30 different rabbit holes. Because going back to that library moment, like I want that book and I want the things I create in the future to be that library moment for people mm. and not um, have it add to the noise, if that makes sense. Well, I'm getting chills for sure. This is, aw- <laughs> this is awesome. I want to hear more about this book. And I also, I have a couple other questions before we get into it because I'm yeah, curious if it's related, but, um, I'm sure so many people who are tuning into this already know you and have, have a sense of your story. And because I've followed your journey for a while, I know that your, your endo story, your endometriosis is, is such a powerful part of your body image experience. So mm-hmm. yeah, can you share a little bit about that and when, when that kind of came into your life and also how that impacted your relationship with your body? Yeah, sure. I mean, like you said, I feel like I've shared it a lot, so I'll try to share something different this time, but, um, <laughs> but I think that, uh, just very briefly, endometriosis, what it is, if, if someone is listening that's never heard of it before, it's when tissue similar to the tissue that lines your uterus grows outside of your uterus. So one in 10 people, I like to say now born with a vagina as opposed to girls cause, or women, because I think transgender and non-conforming people also suffer for in, from endo. But um it can grow onto your lungs in severe cases. It can grow onto your bowels. I mean, it's it can be a very debilitating disease that has nothing to do with painful periods because I think that's the thing that people associate endometriosis with is painful periods. But there are some people with endo that don't have painful periods but have excruciating GI issues, pelvic pain, um, nausea, fatigue. So there's a lot of it can be a very all-encompassing condition. Um, and on my website, Know Your Endo, there's all of the symptoms and we talk about it a lot there. So if you're interested, you could go check that out more. It's a phenomenal resource. And, oh, and yeah, Jessica, I mean, I, I just want to share, like I recommend you to anybody that I know who is struggling with endometriosis. You've just been such a catalyst for opening up the conversation to what this is and also a really practical next step for people too. So I I appreciate you so much for that. Oh, thanks. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so check out the website, but I think that in terms of how endo has impacted my body and my body image, it's so, uh, it's like writing that, you know, the last, I said, I just wrote a book and the book is about endometriosis. And I think I might not have realized just how much Indo has impacted how I see and feel in my body, which might sound Looney Tunes because it's like, how did you not know that? But I think that when you have struggled so much with body image in general and being called certain names and overhearing those painful things that I shared, mm-hmm. you... I think you kind of separate the two, but I I think after and during writing the endometriosis book that I just wrote, I thought I had so much acceptance of my endo and I thought 
it's, it's very compartmentalized into, okay, this is my endo, this is my body stuff. But I realized writing it how much the two were connected in a way I didn't realize. And, you know, with endo, so many people have so much bloat and inflammation and, and I think that when you're already feeling heavy or gross in your body and then you tack on a double whammy of inflammation and GI issues and bloat, mm-hmm. it's like, so wait, is it the endo or is it this? Do I? So I think I didn't realize, I think, how much they were connected even until I wrote that book, which is nuts to me. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, no, it really is so interesting. And it's, you know, I, I'm a body image coach. And so this is something that I talk about a lot with clients, just these moments in our life and these themes in our life that are so interconnected to our body image that we very often don't even recognize. And I think it's incredibly common to have have something that's really underlying and might seem obvious, but isn't that drives this uh, dissatisfaction or discomfort with the bodies that we're in. And so I, I hear that and I relate to that personally as well too, with a lot of things in life. And so I appreciate you sharing that. What? Wait, yeah. can I add one more thing to that? Of because course, I think please. a lot of times friends of mine will say, you're always wearing baggy clothes, show off your body. And you know, some friends know about my body issues and it's like, your body's beautiful, show it off. And, and sometimes I have to, sometimes I've gotten to a point where I've stopped them and say, look, I wear these like flowy caftans sometimes, a lot of times, not because I hate my body, but because I tried to wear a really nice pair of fitted jeans on my way over here. But because my stomach was so inflamed because of my endo, I had to take them off. Like I couldn't comfortably sit and speak to you with them on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I used to kind of just kind of shove off those comments and being like, oh, I know I have body image. It's like, you know what? Actually, I don't feel comfortable in a pair of tight pants because my stomach is pressing again against it so hard. And I think sometimes I always viewed that as my body image issues, but I've really, you know, in the last few years have kind of come to terms with, no, it's also about just not feeling comfortable in that tight pair of pants. Yeah. Yeah. And, and having the self-awareness and the confidence to do something about it and be okay with it too. And, and make that connection. I mean, it's, it's so important. Um, and to set that boundary as well with, with comments and also just what you're, what you're willing to wear or not wear in circumstances. I know I just, I did a post on know your endo and cause someone had, had messaged me and said, have you ever thought about doing a pant roundup for people with endo. And so I like posed the question to my community and my favorite answer was, (laughs) excuse me, (coughs) I was just laughing so hard I started coughing. Um, This person (laughs) wrote, one of the comments was, what are pants? (laughs) I I sent it to my friend. That's the friend that's kind of, that always kind of gets on me the most Mm. about not showing off my body more. And I'm like, I'm not alone in this, dude. It's like, 
look at these, you know, 50 comments of people saying the same exact thing that I'm always telling you. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I'm just so passionate about not making comments about bodies in general for this reason. I mean, this is really such a beautiful example of why we should just keep these opinions to ourselves because we have no idea what the other person is struggling with. No idea. Good, bad, or indifferent. And it's, I always use the, the tagline, not your body, not your business. And it's not to be mean, it's just to be respectful. And there are so many other things to focus on in our relationships with each other than, than our bodies and, and um, how we're showing them off or you know, showing up in them. Not showing them off. Yeah. Not showing them off, yeah. And, and I think it would be not fair to also say that last year I had a breast reduction mm. and that also just changed my whole life in terms of feeling more comfortable in my body. And because I was a size G before, which Mm -hmm. is pretty big for my body, at least it it felt very big size G. And, um, and I just, you know, I also had a huge chunk of hanging skin off of my stomach from an endo surgery that was done not the best about 12 years ago when they they did like a laparotomy where they cut me from hip to hip kind of like a c-section but when they sewed me up it left this like big chunk of hanging skin from my body and so you know years and years of going to therapy and therapists telling me you know it's just body dysmorphia it's just cuz i would always say like i just don't feel comfortable like i just feel like my body is just constantly being weighed down mm-hmm. and one therapist was like it would be great if you could go to a nudist camp and just be free and so when i decided to last year get a breast reduction and get that chunk of skin removed from my body, um, I was a little bit nervous because I was thinking, what if they're right and these things aren't as bad as I think they are? It's just the body dysmorphia. But let me tell you, getting those Gs off my body and getting that hanging skin, it changed just how I walk through my home. Like I, like I remember three months after I got it done, my husband said, he was like, I just want to cry watching you walk through our house. He was like, your posture is different. You carry yourself different because you're just not weighted down. Mm. So I just, I wanted to add that because I think it's, I've talked about it before on my podcast that I got a breast reduction. And I think it's something too, where I think there's a lot of judgment about with the body positivity movement and anyone that's ever struggled with any sort of body issues. It's like, oh, well, you're just getting that done for this. Or you're, it's like, actually, I just feel lighter without carrying around like five pounds of boobs on my chest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, I hear that. And I also want to echo that. I don't know how you feel about this. I, I am personally so not interested in the shame that's really coming up in the body positive movement. And also I, I'm an intuitive eating counselor and the intuitive eating community too, and the non-diet community. And, um, 
there's such good intention behind everything, but there's this underlying shame in a lot of messages that I see as well too. And it, it goes back to what, what I just said, it's not your body, it's not your business. And also it's what works for you, what makes you comfortable in your skin. And this is a great yeah, example you, of that. Yeah. Cause you see, there's a lot of body positive people where they also have that hanging chunk of skin and they hold it and show close-ups of it in photos. And it's like, I love this extra. It's like, well, that's cool for you, but it actually made me feel bad about myself because it was a reminder of it. I kind of felt like I got butchered on the table and I have this thing that's a reminder of like a really bad surgery that I had. And Mm -hmm. I can't wear certain clothes because there's this hanging chunk of skin and it's like, and I think I debated getting that freaking piece of skin (laughs) taken off so much because the boobs were an easy choice. It's like, these are like actually making my shoulders and back hurt, right? It's like, that's easy. Insurance covered it, done. But the stomach thing, I, I debated it a lot because I'm like, am I the type of person that does this? Like, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to just figure out how to love this part of my body. What's wrong with me? And I didn't love it. So I got it fixed. I love that you just said that. And I, I'm curious how how did it sit with you after the surgery and after the fact and and today like what's been the mindset shift with with that decision and how it's impacted your body image right now? I mean, I wish I would have gotten it done like ten years ago. Um, it was a great decision for me. I love. I didn't even know what a bralette was like didn't even know those existed. I can wear bralettes now. I'm still a D, so it's not like I'm small, but I definitely feel a lot more freedom. Um, just freedom. I feel free. Mm. And I think it's, it's tricky because with endo, I've been dealing with a lot of GI issues lately, which I think are partly stress. I might have SIBO. Like I'm not really sure what's happening, but I'm still, I still have a lot of discomfort in terms of inflammation, but not having to carry around those boobs, it just like, like one of my favorite things to do is use my little rebounder trampoline. Like that's a completely different experience now. I'm like sure. I don't have to wear two sports bras. Yeah. Um, I don't have a bra that's literally like digging into my skin. I just, uh, I just feel it's so weird because it feels so like this is the way my body is supposed to be that it doesn't even feel that different. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I love that. How about the decision for getting the excess skin removed on your stomach? Oh, best decision ever. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's just, when I, when I see that now, it doesn't, I don't think about the trauma of that surgery anymore. I was just thinking that it's, it sounds incredibly traumatic. And that reminder, just being with you physically every single day as a, as a reminder of that experience. Yeah. Cause that surgery, I was supposed to go, this is like, that was the, the, the surgery that diagnosed me with endo. And it was supposed to be an outpatient surgery where I just went in, 
they looked through my belly button to see if I had endo, but because I had such sizable cysts and the doctor who did it, thankfully she diagnosed me, but she was not a surgeon. So they had to do, she did an emergency surgery on the table. And so when I woke up, I woke up with like a catheter in like what I was like, what? It just, I was on morphine. Like I didn't know where I was or what happened. So it was just like a very, uh, it was an intense time. And that big freaking thing of skin, just, it always reminded me of that. And I hated it. Yeah. It sounds really violating and unexpected for sure. I'm curious about your endo. When did you Mm -hmm. start experiencing symptoms with that? And what were some of the first signs for you that even made you think, okay, something's not quite right here? Well, I mean, I think that with the endo question, it's it's difficult because most people with endo, most, I'm not, I don't know if I should say most, a lot of people with endo have symptoms beginning with their first periods. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't diagnosed until my late twenties, which is pretty common. Most people, it takes about 10 years and eight doctors to get diagnosed. So I was very aware of how painful my periods were. I was very aware that sex was painful. I had horrible GI issues, but I didn't know that I'd never heard of endometriosis until I was actually diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. So you know, my mom also had debilitating periods. So that was just like, well, that's what happens in my family when you have periods. I didn't know that the GI issues were even connected. So, I mean, I wasn't diagnosed until I had a cyst that ruptured or twisted. I'm not, we're not really sure what happened, but it sent me to the emergency room and finally, after going to the emergency room multiple times, there was a doctor there that said, hey, you might want to see this doctor. And then that doctor sent me to another doctor. And that doctor believed that I might have something wrong with me, which was endo. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it's just, and that's why this work is, I'll start crying, but it's like, that's why this work is so important to me is because there's so many people just walking around in debilitating pain thinking that's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's not a life to live, you know? And I think, you know, there was that BBC study that I reference a lot because I think, you know, they interviewed over 13,000 people with endo and nearly half of those people said that they have either tried or contemplated suicide. They had suicidal thoughts because of their endo. Almost half. Like how messed up is that? Yeah. And these are people that know they have it. So think about all of those other millions of people that don't even know that they have this and that is what's wrong with them. And no one is believing them. It takes eight doctors. Like what? It's just not acceptable. It's not. I... So I've never, I, I don't have endo. And so I can only imagine from an empathetic, empathetic standpoint. And I also have a handful of people in my life who are experiencing it and knowing your story and others' stories. It's, it is 
it, it's just so, um, it's so devastating in terms of how this impacts people's lives. And I really think the lack of, the lack of community around this as well too, and the lack of um, support. And that's why I'm so grateful for communities like yours that are really giving that safe haven for, for anybody going through this. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's tricky because I think, you know, writing the book I just wrote, you, <laughs> you want to end it with a hug and say like, everything's fine now, but right. everything's, for some people is not fine right now because if you are a transgender person living in the United States with endo, you can be denied care just based on the fact that you are transgender. You, there is not the excision surgery that is the best surgery for endo is not covered by insurance. So we have a lot of ways to go. And I think that it's tricky trying to write a book about something that you want there to be a happy ending. And I think that, like you said, it's like the thing that we can do is to help people understand the actual facts. Like no, a hysterectomy is not a cure. It can help people. It's not a cure. And then also just to provide some sort of hope, like there are tools that you can use that might help you. There are good doctors out there and there is like this entire community that understands what you're going through. What are some of the best tools that you found to support yourself through this? Well, the tools that I'm covering in the book are the tools that I use, which is number one is number one tool is knowing your endo. That's why I called my website, know your endo, because I think it's astonishing how many people with endo don't even know all of the symptoms. And it's not until, you know, when you go to your doctor for GI issues, a GI, do GI doctor, you don't think you have endo. And when you, when you go to your gynecologist, it's very rare that they talk about the GI issues that can come with endo. So I think knowing your endo and knowing like, oh, hey, I have maybe these I have diarrhea after I eat certain things, maybe because it's connected to my endo in some way. Mm. So I think understanding your endo is key. Number one, two is movement. Movement is probably aside from food is just my number one tool. And that's not necessarily like running a marathon, but it's doing foam rolling, just moving my body in some way every single day, even if it's stretching in bed. Um, food, huge for me, at least a low inflammatory diet, stress management, something I'm constantly trying to work on. Mm -hmm. And then I think that one that's more of a invisible slash disputed, unproven, but I think it's true, is, is using more non-toxic and I call them kinder products in my life. So getting rid of a lot of the chemicals in my life, like I'm very sensitive to certain smells and yeah. things like that. So using 100% organic cotton tampons and pads or just using period underwear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of studies to support the kinder products matter. There's a lot of studies like the EFA saying, no, it doesn't matter if you have, you know, certain ingredients in your tampons, but 
I don't know. Like, I don't personally want to put chemicals up my vagina. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, whether or not this is like 100% proven or not, for me personally, I just think it probably is a good choice not to put them up me. Yeah. No, I I totally, I relate to that. And I agree with that also. I'm I'm also curious, this is something that I had in mind before we actually started this conversation and now it seems timely to ask, but mm. I'm, I'm curious having a life that is committed to kind products and kinder food options and, and also movement options and all of these amazing tools and really being able to temper when it becomes stressful so Mm -hmm. ingredient checking when that is actually doing more harm than good or um you know if you weren't able to move your body and feeling stressed out about that and so basically getting away from the shoulds versus what feels really good and nourishing for you how do you manage Mm -hmm. how do you manage that because i and i'm also interested in your thoughts on this just in the wellness culture in general because i'm i'm sure you've seen this exploited as well too in the space. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. I mean, I think something big that I'm excited about that I talk about in the book is just really coming to terms with defining my best with endo. Mm -hmm. And I think coming to terms with my best, maybe being someone else's worst nightmare. (laughs) It's like, that's okay because it's my best. Meaning, you know, a couple months ago, I remember very well, I wanted to do this dance YouTube class and started doing it. And it was a few days before my period. And there was just, it was, there's just no way, like I felt too fatigued to dance. And so instead of in the past being mad at myself, like, oh, like you should just dance anyway, like it, or blaming myself, like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that yesterday. So you'd have more energy today. Instead of just being like, All right, I can't do this today, closing the computer, pulling out my foam roller and just rolling it out and feeling like this is my best for today. Mm. And just kind of being cool with that. Um, I think when it comes to the food part, I think that took much longer uh, because I do think it's very overwhelming in the beginning to check ingredients. And I do think it's very overwhelming in the beginning to say no thank you to your favorite dish that may send you straight to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So I think it's you know, again, doing your best and then also deciding like, okay, well, there's this someone at a party made me a gluten-free vegan piece of cake for this party. It's kind of two weeks out from my period. I'll just eat it Mm -hmm. and see what happens. But maybe I would also say no to that piece of cake on my period. Mm. So I think it's kind of also figuring out when and where and why I do things. Yeah. Yeah. The two things that are coming up just from hearing you share all of this is just choices, your personal choices based on what you know about your body and working with your body and also self-compassion too, Mm -hmm. and the permission to not, not be perfect. (laughs) 
Yeah, of course. I mean, I I wrote so much and I like tell everyone I know about Kristen Neff's book, yes. Self-Compassion. It's oh, just- It's so good. Because I hear that word self-compassion and I immediately want to roll my eyes because it sounds like so like self-care and I just am like- <laughs> just tired of like all of those words so much. Yeah. But when you actually read that book or you listen to her on a podcast, talk about the science of it, you're like, oh my gosh, there is science to this. There, there is, is science to the way that we talk to ourselves, changes how our pathways and our brain work. Like it's just, it's incredible. It's fascinating. And it's so powerful too, um, because it, it really is one of those concepts that defines everything beginning with ourselves and the choices that we make and, and the minds that we have and really how that impacts how we show up in the world, the relationships that we have with others and the work that we do mm-hmm. and the choices that we make. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of hers. I don't know if you, if you use Insight Timer at all for any type of meditations, but I highly recommend checking her out. On there too. Okay. She's got some okay. great, I will. great self-compassion meditations. Um, so how do you define self-care then? I'm, I'm also in, in this camp. I, I'm on a big mission to create themes of radical self-care in life. And so I'd be curious to hear what self-care means for you. I just hate that term. I do too. Well, you know, one of my friends said, can we call it soul care? And I said, oh my God, that's so much better. But I feel like it's her term. So I can't, if Tyler Rowling, yeah. if you're listening, it's so, how would you define soul care? How about we go with that? I mean, I think it's just, I think, I, I guess like I would decide, I would define self-care by just saying self-compassion. I mean, I think it's, mm-hmm. I think where it gets tricky, and I mentioned this on my podcast, there's that new book called Self-Care. It's, I think it's by Lee Stein. Mm-hmm. It's a fiction book, but it just has a pink bottle on it with oh God. black goo coming down it. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so she's kind of like knocking it, which I enjoyed. Um, because oh, I think that- Awesome. I, I, was, I had a completely different image in my mind when you were saying that. Do you like see it? Was, no, I, I'll look it up though while you're talking. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, um, it's just like, it just feels so- privileged. It feels so like every brand is like jumping on the self-care train. It's like a brands that have nothing even to do with like, it's like not that Snickers is doing self-care, but like brands like that, where it's just like, okay, this has just become like a thing that I don't even understand what it means anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think to me, it's like, I don't know, sitting in the bathroom and reading a chapter of a book when I don't even have to go to the bathroom. Like I go to the bathroom a lot when I'm not actually going to the bathroom because I'm like (laughs) a six-year-old at home and I'm just like, I got to go to the bathroom and I'm not going to the bathroom. I'm just sitting in the bathroom (laughs) reading (laughs) a chapter of a book. Yeah. (laughs) And he's old enough now where he can play with Legos or do whatever while I'm quote unquote going to the bathroom. So I think it's just like, taking those moments or, I mean, my favorite form of soul care is eating in front of the TV and watching like a show that I like. Mm -hmm. Like to me, it's like, you're not supposed to eat in front of the TV. I don't fucking care. Like Mm -hmm. that's to me is like the ultimate indulgence at night. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, it's so personal for everyone. I, I would add to, I think we can create like a shared list. I, I would also add like boundary setting is one of my favorite ways of yes. self-care. Just like saying no more and, and really saying it with conviction and intention to take care of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people struggle with that, myself included. And so when I can lay a boundary down, I get really excited. And uh, I totally think of that as a form of self-care and also just- For sure. And also just doing But yeah, it, there needs to be a new term. It's like- Yeah. Because I, ultimately, like, ultimately it shouldn't be this like destination. It should just be something that we do every day in our lives. Like, like you said, like setting boundaries. That shouldn't be like- my form of self-care today. It's like, no, that should just be something you do to take care of yourself, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, well, it's interesting because in intuitive eating, you you may or may not know this, but self-care is kind of the underlying theme of all of the intuitive eating principles. And that's where I really started to shift my perspective around it where, hey, this isn't a bubble bath. It's not like a a trip to the nail salon or, you know, those are all forms of it, but it really is self-compassion, self-kindness, self-love, um, mental wellness, treating yourself in a way that feels good and, and really making that choice from a place of empowerment rather than a place of shoulds or expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I also see this book and I love the cover and (laughs) (laughs) well, and it's crazy because like I didn't even really realize how much I disliked that phrase until I remember when we were doing the proposal for my next book, Know Your Indo. And this was like, you know, we were writing the proposal like two and a half years ago. And I remember my agent said, do not put the phrase self-care anywhere in this proposal. I'm like, (laughs) okay. And she was like, that word is going to be over very soon. And so I'm like, okay, I'm, I won't. And then, then it just stuck. And then I would, then I just started seeing it everywhere in a way that I didn't like it. I was like, oh, she was right. Yeah. So what'd you put instead? Um, I, I use the word tools. I use the word everyday life tools. I use, um, yeah. toolkit. I just, or I just use taking care of yourself. Yeah, I love that. I use toolkit also. I also use self-care toolkit. <laughs> yeah. And listen, I think it has its place. I think it just I think it's just gotten out of control because like buying a $70 face mask, like maybe that is self-care for someone, but then also don't make someone feel bad that they can't participate yeah. in a $70 face mask. 100%. It's just, it's confusing. The The term is confusing at this moment in time, I feel like. Um, yeah. And, and way overused. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I want to go back to if it's cool, and I just, mm-hmm. I love when, when themes like this pop up in conversation, but that moment of being given that diagnosis for your endometriosis when you had never heard of it before. I really Mm -hmm. see a lot of the parallel between the body dysmorphia and, Mm -hmm. and the diagnosis there and and never having heard of it before at that time Mm -hmm. in your life. Isn't that interesting though, that I, now when you have this diagnosis of endo, you don't have to rush to the library. Um, I'm I'm curious (laughs) What, what was the first thing that you did when you, when you found out and how did you start 
gathering information and, and taking the first step to just feel like you could do something about this? Well, I mean, at the time that I was diagnosed, I mean, I, there wasn't a lot out there. Um, I remember, I, first of all, I remember my mom calling the hospital, my hospital room and her, me just being like, oh yeah, I'll be back at work like tomorrow. And my husband like looked at me and she, I remember her being on the phone. She's like, yeah, you're not going to be back to work tomorrow. Like you just basically had a C-section. And I also remember the doctor coming in and saying like, you know, that your cysts are benign. And I'm like, wait, what? I didn't even think about that part either. So I think I was just kind of, everything just seemed like a fog, a hazy fog. And then when I got home, you know, there wasn't a lot of websites about endometriosis at that point. And I remember going to the Mayo Clinic website and it telling me that my options were a hysterectomy or drug hormone therapy mm-hmm. and that sometimes hot baths and, you know, exercise could help. I was like, well, okay, those are the options. And then going on to message boards. And I think this was even like before Reddit and just, you know, reading these really depressing message boards of people just not knowing what to do and having hysterectomies and going on crazy drug hormone treatments and just feeling like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is, my life is going to suck. Like I almost like, I was glad to know what I had, but I also was like, this seems like a depressing life ahead of me. So it definitely, it was bleak. (laughs) It didn't feel, I mean, there wasn't, and I think at that time there wasn't even any endometriosis books I could find. Yeah. That's so crazy. When do you feel like you started to really have a light bulb moment in a sense of, okay, now I'm getting somewhere with this. Was, was it something that you read or was it somebody that you talked to? And also when did you actually start doing work around creating content for, for endo for other people? Well, I had another surgery after my diagnosis and then for, I don't know, another six or seven years, just going downhill in terms of pain because my doctor put me on birth control, which royally just messed me up. And I didn't even know that's what was messing me up. I became severely depressed. I did not want to wake up in the morning. And um, my doctor, I just remember seeing her and like telling her like, I cannot live this way. And she gave me the choice. She said, you can either have a hysterectomy or you can go on this hormonal drug treatment. And I remember going home and researching the hormonal drug treatment. And I'm like, there's, I mean, hair loss, all of these people saying that they had to quit their jobs because they were so depressed and all of these things, side effects they were having. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just get a hysterectomy then. And then I remember a friend, this is the person I dedicated my one part plant book too. If you've ever looked at that book at the first page, it says to Amanda is the friend. Oh my that, God. Um, <laughs> yes. I have that book. I gave, I give it to a lot of people and now I know who it is. Yeah. So Amanda was um, visiting me in Chicago where I lived and 
I, I got, I was very good at hiding my pain. And at that point I decided I was just going to get a hysterectomy, just get it, but it felt easier. And, um, she, I really, she stayed with me and I think she really saw just how in pain I was. Cause I think she didn't realize it. And when she got back home, she just, she started researching it for herself and she found this website that talked about how plant-based eating could help endo. And she just sent me the link and didn't even send anything like you should try this or anything. She just sent me the link. And at that point, again, this is like almost 10 years ago, I think. So there was not information online or podcast about how food and these things could help endo. It was either like hysterectomy or drugs. Mm -hmm. And so I tried it. I was like, nothing to lose. I'm going to get the hysterectomy anyway. But when I made those changes to my life, it just changed everything. I stopped taking birth control. And again, like, uh, you know, my story is my story. I'm not suggesting that you do these things, but uh, well, I am suggesting that you do some things like moving your body and eating sure. different, but um, <laughs> <laughs> eating different for yourself. But I think um, that, and then I went back to my doctor and I said, I feel so much better and told her I didn't want to be on birth control anymore and told her I don't need a hysterectomy. And she didn't, I had to stop seeing her um, because she would call me like once a week telling me I need to get back, back on birth control. And I did not want to be on it anymore. Wow. And I did, I mean, I, you know, when she told me I needed a hysterectomy, I did get a second opinion. That doctor also told me I should get a hysterectomy. So um, so yeah, Amanda saved my life. <laughs> That's amazing. I, so she's like an angel in your life and she is. Yeah. That's awesome. When did you just, Jessica, when did you start doing work in the field to really create content around endo? What did you like, what was the first thing that you did and when did you feel like that passion was really ignited in you to actually feel that, that desire and that push to share everything that you were learning? Well, I mean, I think after I changed my diet and incorporated lifestyle tools, the diet thing was just revolutionary for me just to not have all the GI issues and pain. And at the time I was working in food, not in food, but I was working in marketing and branding. I had a, a company and I was a designer and I worked a lot with restaurants and part of my working with restaurants is I would get paid, but I also would get trade um, to eat. So there was like one restaurant I had like $3,000 of trade, but I couldn't eat a single thing at the restaurant because of the way that I ate. And so I initiated this program called One Part Plant, where in Chicago, I worked with the best chefs to have at least one plant-based meal option on their menu, which now is like you, most restaurants do that. But at the time, that was not the case. And that was my way of sharing how food helped me because I was very weird about not wanting to be the Indo girl. Mm -hmm. Like, because I felt like food could help so many people. So I launched the website, One Part Plant, that housed all of these restaurants I was working with. And I would include some Indo information, like, I think in my about section. But, and then I got a book deal from 
that website and the food program I created. And in one part plan, I included a very small page about endometriosis because I wanted the chance to share what the symptoms were. And from that book, getting the response of people saying, this is the first time I've ever seen all of my symptoms on one page. Mm. I bought this book for the cookie recipe, but then I ended up getting diagnosed because of this book. And it's like, what? So I remember my agent, my literary agent telling me, you know, I have a lot of friends that have bought your book that have Indo and they want more. Like maybe you could make like an ebook or something. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to make a look at ebook. Let's just make a website Mm -hmm. for it. And I I think that's what really got me so passionate about it. It's like, why is this freaking cookbook diagnosing people? Like that's not, that's weird. (laughs) Like they stumble, like if they hadn't bought this cookbook, they wouldn't have been diagnosed with endo right now. Like maybe they would have eventually, but like, how did this cookbook, that was the catalyst? That's so cool to me. I mean, that's just such a good example of uh, such an awesome example of divine timing for people. And it, it really just falling into their lap, essentially, it sounds like. And, and also like, just, you know, I give a lot of credit to my editor of that book because it was weird to have a page about a the condition, like a period thing. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I, I like talking about periods and I like talking about female issues, but it definitely stood out in the book. I mean, it wasn't an endometriosis book. It was a cookbook. Right. Right. So, um, so well, yeah, I just, yeah. It's funny that you th- that you're saying this because I, I, I don't even know how I got connected to you, Jessica, but I've, I think I started listening to your podcast and I, I think I bought your book afterwards. And like I said, I don't have endo. Uh, I don't even think I knew anybody who had endo back then. I was, um, I was really heavily into plant-based eating at the time and I loved you and your message. And so I bought the book and I vividly remember feeling connected with that page and with your story around endo. And so for me, not even having any of those symptoms, that stands out in my memory as, wow, like this is really powerful. So clearly it's the way that you, it was the heart that you, uh, the heart and soul put into the book in that page, those pages that really came through. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I just felt like if this book is being published with a major publisher, this is an opportunity for someone to see the symptoms. Yeah, it's pretty because cool. I was really, I, I get really upset <laughs> that there are not pamphlets in a doctor's office with the freaking symptoms. It's like you get one on STDs, you get one on checking your breasts, you get all these things, but it's like there's no pamphlet for something that affects one in 10 women. Yeah. So I'll put it in my cookbook. <laughs> I love it. What can, so for anybody listening who does not have Mm -hmm. endo, Mm -hmm. what, what are some tips for us to take action to move this conversation forward or to be a catalyst for anybody who, who's struggling or like, do you have any practical steps for anybody who's listening to this and feeling like, what can I do? Yeah. I mean, I think for people that 
don't have it that want to help those that do. I think one, anytime that you can share the symptoms with someone, like if you know someone that has extremely debilitating periods or suffers from, you know, infertility issues, I think just investigating the symptoms and being there, Amanda, and sending, you know, maybe my website to them or another endometriosis website, like, oh my gosh, have you ever seen this? Or have you heard about this? I mean, I think that can be incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. I also just, um, posted on the Know Your Endo account things that I want you and don't want you to say to me. Mm. And I think saying things like, I guess we can use self-care longer, but in 2020, I want the phrase, you got this to just fucking go away forever. Because (laughs) like when you're in debilitating pain or you have to get an ultrasound or, and someone's like, you got this. It's like, double middle like that like it's the most like dismissive oh yeah <laughs> phrase that's such a good word for it it is dismissive ever yeah so and and i think you know i think it's when someone is struggling and can't come to your party again because of their cramps it's maybe dropping them off some leftovers or calling them from the party and saying hi because i think that Indo so much, like half of the Indo battle is the mental game. I was just going to ask that, yeah. Yeah, it feels embarrassing. And it also feels like you're making this up or you're being dramatic or how could someone be in pain all the time like that? And it's not just painful periods. It's like sometimes you're so tired from Indo that like you can't even imagine like blow drying your hair. Mm. So I think it's having more true empathy for your friends and and not another thing I cannot stand is people say, well, at least you have like a nice pet husband, you know, cute hair or whatever. It's like, no, like at least I don't, it's like, just how can I help you? Or I love you. Or can I bring you dinner? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you don't get it. If you've never had it, you don't understand it. Yeah. It's so powerful. I I really appreciate you sharing all that. And I love this conversation. I There's so many things that I want to ask you. I also want to be mindful of your time. Um, so we'll just have to have you back if you're, okay. if you're into yeah. it when the book comes out and everything. Yeah, um, I love it. Yeah, this has been great. And to put a bow on everything, I will just plug you and then you can tell people where to find you. But everybody who's listening, whether you have ended, whether you don't, whether you are interested in eating more plant-based or not, she's awesome to follow. Her podcast is one of the best podcasts that I've ever listened to. Oh, that's really nice of you. I you. Yeah. And I will just say if, if there is ever an award for best podcast intro song, it goes to you. <laughs> Thank you. You know what's so weird? I have gotten so like... I've gotten more compliments than not, but the people that don't like that song really don't like the song. Really? And I don't understand why because oh my I God. Like I'm like, pop the champagne. I'm in the club <laughs> at like 8 a.m. I fucking love it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, my friend Nick made it for me um, when I was starting the podcast and it just, it makes me so happy. It makes me so happy. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Um, 
now now you say where people can find you all the places go ahead and, and we'll, we'll link everything okay. in the well, show since i'm since i'm the best um <laughs> <laughs> you can uh thanks for the compliments you can find me at jessicamarnian.com i'll i will say i'm so excited i hired this amazing design duo in the UK to give me a brand new website and look because I did jessicamarnan.com. A friend did it for free for me seven years ago when blogs were like a thing. And it looks like it was done seven years ago when blogs were a thing. So I'm very excited that I will have a new website in the next couple of months. So you can find me at jessicamarnan.com, know your Indo, one part podcast. And then I'm sort of on Instagram sometimes when I am feeling it. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much and I'll talk soon. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you to our producer, Stephanie Olea, our show manager, Shayla Anderson, and our incredible guest, If you want to stay connected and learn more about our guests today, click the show notes of this episode. And if this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend or leave a review so that we can continue to destigmatize these important conversations around our relationship with food and body and spread inspiration to more women. One last thing, please don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can save time and stay on top of each new episode every week. I'm sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. Talk to you soon.